Hello and welcome to Newsreel with Joe and Neil. I'm Joe. I'm Neil, and this week, if you thought regime change was a thing of the past, you're very much wrong. We're going to be discussing the situation in Venezuela, which really is like two decades old, but it came up suddenly last week when Trump declared that the U.S. no longer recognizes Maduro as the legitimate, quote, leader of Venezuela, and instead the United States government recognizes the leader of the opposition, Juan Guaido. Guaido. Guido. Who's like, he's been three weeks the leader of a party, for literally for three weeks. He's 35 years old. Um, studied in the United States. That's about all I know about him. That's probably all about uh, how, a lot, how much a lot of people know about him. Um, so, yeah. It's uh, the same old regime change. I'm sick of it. I'm so sick of it. When was the last regime change operation? Syria. Syria, but that kind of failed. Uh, Libya. Okay, Libya. But that also failed because there is no Libya. I mean, there's three governments. There's like, <clears throat> they didn't exactly get in the government. Was... So when was the last Latin American one? Oh, Latin American one? Yeah. Uh, Honduras? 2009. Okay, it's been 10 years. 10 years isn't bad. That's like that's a pretty long stretch for yeah. the US to go without overthrowing a democratically elected leader of a Latin American country. 10 years, that's not bad. Good job, man. And notice that also that Honduras is the place now where they say all the immigrants are coming <clears throat> into the US. Ooh. Yeah. Strange. So millions of migrants coming up, we need a wall, Trump. Hmm. So you're going to do something in Venezuela and then you're going to get millions of migrants? Mm-hmm. Do you not like see the obvious problem with the logic? <laughs> yeah. Well, there's also Venezuela. I think uh, stats are since 2015. What's that? Three years ago, about uh, about two million people have fled the country. And since then, since 2015, the U.S. has been sanctioning Venezuela. Uh, do those sanctions have any impact on the the reasons why people are leaving? Quite possibly, economic and diplomatic sanctions. Uh, causing more people ahead, I suppose, from Venezuela northwards. Not only, but some going northwards towards the American border. At which point Trump uh, says, keep them out. I mean, talk about creating your own problems, you know, so that then you can, like, solve them. Well, why would you create a problem just so you can solve it? Why not, cr not create the problem in the first place? Anyway, um, those, are, those aren't the right questions to be asking in this day and age. They're too reasonable and sensible and rational. You just gotta feel it. You gotta feel the regime change. Yeah. Feel the feel the freedom and democracy. What I find remarkable is everybody knows about the U.S. past in Latin America. Mm. Everybody, I, everybody, well, right, everybody left. You know, they know. <coughs> um, everybody knows about the recent disasters in the Middle East successes from a certain perspective, but everybody agrees to call it. It's politically correct these days to acknowledge, in fact, that there were disastrous interventions. Of course, that justifies continuing to stay there to fix the problem, well, but whatever, everyone agrees. Who? Most people. Most and, people. Well, I have first-hand experience in recent days from talking to a commoner garden person, the commoner garden variety person that exists in the world particularly in, we in, in Western countries. And I asked that person, 
what they thought about Syria. What was their analysis of Syria? What was going on? What has been going on in Syria? And the person said that Assad had been bombing his own people and that ISIS were trying to stop him. I, I wouldn't include that. It's too recent. I'm thinking more of the foundational... The Iraq War. You have to understand how it blew my mind when they actually said ISIS was trying to stop Assad bombing his own people. <laughs> uh, okay. The, the, that, the, that's the, that's the, the snapshots that people get. It's the headlines. It's what filters down. It's very interesting to just look at see to, to see the effect of the media and mm. how people grab these news bites and how then they are distilled in the vat of their minds and then regurgitated as here's what I think was going on. I mean... People don't care. They're not interested in the same way we are in what's going on. They're not interested in actually looking at it and thinking about it uh, because they've got all the things to occupy themselves with. But uh, it's just they're still absorbing information is the problem. They're still being informed. They still want to be informed. It'd be far better people just actually, like many people often say, have said over the years, just shut off your TV altogether. You're far better off. You don't know anything mm -hmm. in the sense that no information is better or... or Wrong information is better than no information at all. So you're better off with no information because what you get from the media just in those little headlines that you absorb is uh, is apparently is invariably yeah completely <laughs> wrong. Like even even the the media that give them to you would not agree with you. Mm -hmm. They're so wrong. You know where I was going to go with that was that everybody knows on the one hand the the general history of mm. right. But also, at the same time today, everybody knows, in quotes, that Maduro is socialist, is bad, slash dictator, um, hurting his own people, anti-democratic, etc., etc. And I mean everybody. Mm. Like, the observant types, the ones with their independent websites, mm. uh, who have been to Venezuela to report live, you know, make videos and to meet people there and discuss it. Mm -hmm. They are still also as confused as a lot of people about what the situation is, what is actually going on there. And I don't blame them. What, what I'm getting to is that there is a lot of confusion about Venezuela, yeah. especially since Chavez died. Um, the events of last week made me regret personally that I didn't pay more attention as things were taking along to what was going on because people have been flipped in a big way. It was quite substantially... Um, I think I think it, it was indisputable that um, the first ten years under Chavez that Venezuela was changing for the better, yeah. and people admired him getting up on stage in international fora and basically giving the two fingers to the Bush regime, uh, among other things, and making uh, begin, beginning to make some kind of alliances with non-aligned countries in Eurasia, like Russia and China. Um, so, but something, something has happened in the interim. I think the confusion about Venezuela is a product of the amount of work that has gone into creating that confusion. Maybe just as a byproduct, I'm not saying the intention to do this, but there's been some serious, serious manipulation within Venezuela, about Venezuela to an international audience in the last six, seven years since Chavez's death, such that today it is confusing. And I don't, I, I can understand, I can empathize with why people would be like, 
for example, if their basic position is now they're seeing, like, for example, the, the idiocy of the left in the United States and elsewhere. And then what they know about Venezuela is that it's ruled by a very much a lefty ideology, uh, lefty people. And, well, you would just put two and two together and assume then from what you're hearing about how horrible things are there. Well, there you go. It's a bloody left, isn't it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that, that's a reasonable heuristic assumption to make. Mm -hmm. um, likewise, on the right, uh, you maybe say the new right, which, which is also anti-war, hates this whole regime change, hates regime change because it's been sold to people over the last few decades mm -hmm. under the premise that we need to go in and save those people, humanitarian mm -hmm. intervention, right. a total lie, and that it's based, again, would have its roots in crazy leftist ideology, mm -hmm. right? So you would have a broad cross-section of people now going, looking at it and going, yeah, Venezuela, basket case. Um, but when the rubber hits the road, where do you stand on intervening in it, in meddling, to use the popular term now? You know, if I mean, if you're if you're of the right and you're genuinely conservative, you just don't do that, period. It doesn't matter if the country's ruled by the communist brigades of the Martian invaders or something right. absolutely extremely bazonkers. Right. It, it's, it's, it's not relevant to you. Right. Mm -hmm. You're like national sovereignty, protect the borders. That's their problem. If they cause us a problem directly, we'll deal with it. Mm -hmm. And the left, of course, would be of the view that, oh, those poor people, we have to help them, which is heavily leveraged, that premise, to go in and intervene in countries. The right calls out the left saying, you're just using that, and uh, what you're doing is you're going in and creating actual problems that do physically rebound on us back home, mass migration being one problem. Uh, that's part of the problem. Stop it. And so everyone agrees in principle not to be going over there and interfering. But... But... The politicians have a different Meanwhile, <clears throat> behind the scenes, they have been interfering in Venezuela up the wazoo. Um, one of the confusing things about Venezuela that people have is, <clears throat> is about the economic situation. Um, it, last week's events caused me to look at it really closely as there's a lot more to, to uncover, I'm sure. But I'm pretty convinced now that the, the Venezuelan government's position is essentially correct. They are the subject of a massive conspiracy. Mm -hmm. That's that's the proper word to use. Um, attacking their finances, attacking their economic system, quite literally the hoarding of goods, and the very selective um, methods and strategies used within Venezuela and without to sabotage this economic situation. Well, well people don't realize that most of the food corporations, food suppliers, the companies that supply food in Venezuela are private. They haven't been nationalized. Right. So those people are, and a lot of those would be, let's say, anti-Chavez, historically anti-Chavez, because, I mean, the owners of them are fairly, of the big ones, obviously, are wealthy people, and they tend to align against, uh, not Chavez, but Maduro, against the Bolivarian Revolution, you know. So those people are very capable of creating, at the behest or at the, you know, at the suggestion of you know, advisors from abroad or even from the U.S. or whatever, uh, to to um, to either not supply food 
uh, as part of a to put pressure on on the Maduro government to create social tension. I mean, it's the old strategy. That's how you do it. If you want a revolution, you gotta you gotta inflame tensions amongst the people. You know what I mean? To create the appearance of this country as ungovernable, ungovernable, or at least either for uh, external parties or from from within. You know that the the government effectively you know lose control of of the of the population or the support of the population where they're just so worked up you know and a clear way to do that is to deprive people of basic necessities mm -hmm. uh, and obviously those uh, big uh, food and you know basic necessities manufacturers uh, or, or producers or suppliers in venezuela they buy a lot of their product or their raw materials from elsewhere so there's a clear leverage there to to sanction those com companies deliberately or uh, against their will or with their with their connivance in an effort to create the right atmosphere in the country so we can change the government, basically. Economic manipulation is just the third tier. Mm -hmm. There are two above that. The one above that, position number two, is finances. Mm -hmm. the, the, this, this is easy for people to get their heads around. Globalist bankers, interconnected banking system working as one, Everyone can relate to that, whether you're coming at this from the right or left. So it, it, the concept is not new to you. It doesn't take hard imagination to, to understand how that works. Um, some, of, some of the anomalies about Venezuela, are like really, they should make everyone think. If this was like an economic crisis of its own doing and essentially um, internally generated by the mistakes of a socialist, quote-unquote, socialist government, then the basic economics should fit. There should be a rough pattern to it. They don't. How does a country have a million percent inflation while unemployment is lower than in France? Mm. Manufacturing increases year on year, and yet it's officially it's GDP, so the nominal value plus actual, it's a combination of market value of what the economy, uh, what its assets, um, what it's producing, etc., it's, it's nominal GDP is tanking in the last two years, but its manufacturing base is increasing. That's not supposed to happen and if it's an actual internal <clears throat> economic crisis. Here's another question. I'm not How saying there is not. There is a crisis. Enough of it, it has been made real. It's manifest. Um, but it's weird. At one moment, this place over here, the, 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 the shop sh shelves are stocked full, except for a couple of key produce. Mm -hmm. like like sanitary towels. And then over here, th there's nothing in the stores. Well, what the hell happened there, you know? Mm -hmm. How does a country like Venezuela with more oil reserves than Saudi Arabia, uh, but less of a population, how is it not... How is it it's not, similar, actually, 30 million to... No, th it's, it's 33 to 31. Saudi Arabia is 33 million people. Okay. And, and Venezuela is 31 million people. Okay, so Venezuela is less of a population than Saudi Arabia, but it has more oil reserves. You, don't look at, you go and look at Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia, with its, with its uh, bigger population than Venezuela and less oil reserves, nobody has to work yeah. because of that oil, oil, that oil resource, yeah. the oil wealth. Yeah. So Venezuela has more oil, oil, more oil wealth, in theory, and less population, but it's in disarray, and people are starving. Well, you hit the. How does it work? This is the mother load. This is the basically, obviously, Venezuela oil. It's this is the. It's probably the only important issue, um, the most important one. Uh, Venezuela, like Russia, certainly Russia, historically, 
has been organized around the production and export of oil. Its ability to do so has tanked, completely tanked. Um, the agreed production levels that it has with OPEC, it doesn't even hit those. Um, and uh, part of that is to do with the manipulation of financing. They cannot raise the financing abroad because they're being told, uh, sorry, no can do. Right. And obviously the insiders abroad have perhaps inside information that you're not going to be around for much longer. Right. So we're going to help so, that happen. So, so to it's speak. about getting access to the oil. Yeah. So the, their production is just tanked. Uh, there is some indication of actual sabotage of pipelines, but leaving aside that because I haven't seen any actual evidence of that, at the, at the financial level, they're being screwed over big time. And it's easy to do when it's all, it's traditionally been a one track, mm. one product country. Mm -hmm. That's why it's having to grow its manufacturing base and to produce a lot of these things that are traditionally just simply imported. Mm -hmm. Whatever, we've got oil, we'll buy all the products from you. Mm -hmm. And then they're having shortages when they don't have, in gaps where they don't produce things themselves. So they're trying to change their economy in the midst of basically. Uh, an economic stranglehold, much in the same way that Iran was subjected mm -hmm. to, and Iraq in the 1990s. Right. Then you can see the social and political results from it, and they point at it and go, there you go, that's the mismanagement of the, of the government. Mm -hmm. um, it's because Venezuela, just because of its Bolivarian revolution and its socialism stuff, it, has, it still hasn't taken any, any loans from the IMF. And one of the big things... Well, it used to. Yeah, it used to, but not yeah. anymore. And one of the big things that any country needs to be if if it aspires to be a first world country and wealthy and stuff is you gotta you gotta get into debt basically. You gotta you gotta you know take a loan, a big loan, an ongoing loan from uh from the International Monetary Fund, you know. Uh because then you're part of the club, right? You're playing by the rules of the game and that kind of stuff, you know, and it's you know, there is possibly a nefarious agenda there, you know, in terms of like you were mentioning earlier earlier, like uh, corporate uh, global banking institutions who want to control as much of the world as possible, not from some kind of like grand conspiratorial, you know, plot or whatever, but rather that just they expand, right? Banks expand. What do banks do? They loan money and they want to loan money to as many people as possible. And unfortunately, when you uh, borrow money from someone, they have a, a kind of a stick over your head, right? Because it's you're, they're, your, they're your creditors. So, um, and when it seems to be that when countries don't do that, they are targeted for, you know, yeah. some severe uh, punishment, let's say, in one way or another. The other, another interesting data point is that 41% of Venezuela's oil, of its total oil production, is bought by? The United States. So why would America want to get control of Venezuela's oil when it's getting, and that's, it's only getting 41%, uh, because that's all it needs. America buys 41% of Venezuelan oil because that's all America needs. Why would it want to invade the country and take control of its oil. So that narrative itself doesn't doesn't stack up either, you know. It's more ideological. It's, certainly there's an ideological uh, view in there um, which isn't necessarily related to any kind of nuts and bolts, I want money or I want uh, power, but rather it's, you know, it's ideological in, in, in nature. And But there's also, uh, Andrew Karibko actually was suggested this, that the US is eyeing its interest in Venezuela is with a view to creating a kind of a, like you were t what you were talking about earlier on about OPEC, o OPEC, and you know the Russia and Saudi Arabia, uh, or uh, organization of petroleum exporting countries, you know, 
Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, et cetera, et cetera. I don't um, think Russia's in it, but it, it no, cooperates it's a, with it. It's a cooperative. Yeah. yeah. But um, that the US is a bit leery of the Middle East and looking down the line type thing in terms of their national interests. They're, because of Russia's recent intervention in the Middle East right. and the changing landscape there, they're more they're concerned about uh, their national security, their oil security, their energy security going forward into the next 10 or 20 years and they're thinking of maybe setting up a kind of uh, uh, not an o- a version basically a South American North, North South American version of OPEC right uh, and NAS North a counter- America South America NASA PEC a ga- like a balancing cartel right uh, because Venezuela, as we mentioned, has the largest reserves of oil the, in the, the world. This needs to be underscored all <coughs> over the place. I don't think people and realize the largest. It's larger than Saudi Arabia. There's one qualification though. It's it's harder to refine. Right, costs more. Eventually, they to need bring to key imports market. to refine it, um, and yeah. that's why so much of it is refined on the U.S. Gulf Coast. Right, exactly. Because and that's the thing: who produces all of the machinery, or where where is that? Where's the where are the centers of production of the, of the uh, machinery? And tools for oil extraction. They're not made in Venezuela. And who is getting? So if somebody doesn't sell you an oil rig, or you know, a, what do you call it? A, a well, an oil well, uh, a machinery for an oil well. But it doesn't matter how much oil you've got. Uh, you're not going to get it, right? So yeah. you're not, your economy isn't going to benefit. Old Venezuela just said, "Sure, you come in and set it up for us, and we'll just live large off it." Right. New Venezuela says. Hang on a second. Why don't we take control of the situation, create jobs for all these poor people, get them educated, and use the wealth that we're sitting on, the mother load we're sitting on, to bring Venezuela up to, well, eventually they could go as far as the Saudis and say no one ever has to work again. They could, theoretically. Right. But America, well, not just America, but let's just abbreviate it to America. I think they viewed Venezuela all these decades as their reserve. Right. Put away here, we have this in the bank in the event that everything goes to shit across the Atlantic in the Middle East. Well, now it is, and now they want to cash in on that reserve. But there's a problem. There's this bloody regime in the way that's trying to use that wealth so it's, uh, yeah, exactly. to develop his country. Right, and it's not just about having access to oil. That's just, that's easy enough. Like, if you really need access to oil, you can go and invade a country and try and take control of the oil wells. But it's about, it's about making sure that big oil producers like Venezuela are ideologically in your camp, i.e. they're aligned with America as the top dog in the world. <clears throat> uh, so that a big thing about oil is obviously tweaking the price of oil, you know, for various different reasons. Sometimes you want it a bit higher, sometimes you want it a bit lower. But that, part of that manipulation of the price of oil is to put pressure on other people who are producing oil as well. Like, that's one of the big things with Russia, right? That Russia was, the Saudis were <coughs> cajoled back in 2015 to basically... Uh, 2014. To, 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 uh, 2014, to overproduce oil, to drop the price. And it plummeted. And it plummeted. So it hurts Russia, countries that, and that, that are America's direct competitors who will suffer financially if the oil price drops. So you and need to have control over... Oil. You don't have to have the oil. You have to have control over oil, and therefore that control over political control over major oil-producing countries. That's the big thing. That attack on the oil price in 2014 had the added bonus of sparking the situation we see now in Venezuela, right? Because that was when the shit hit the fan right. economically, and that's when opposition protests took off 
in a big way, in a way that hadn't been seen really um, mm-hmm. against the Chavista regime for the preceding decade. Um, so the, it's the Venezuela story today is a story since 2014. Um, oil is the mother load. I suppose I was talking earlier about tiers. Uh, if economics is the third tier, finance is the second. The, the other one I want to mention is information. The level of information and uh, the, the media, the, the stuff that creates awareness of what people know or don't know about Venezuela. And the when you step out of it and, and you try to take in this pattern since 2014 in and about Venezuela, it's been enormous. Really, the the only comparable thing is that what was done in and about Libya and then on the topic of Syria, just enormous resources were thrown at painting first Gaddafi and then Assad a certain way um, mm-hmm. and making it real, you know, all the way to creating white helmets, we could probably include creating ISIS and fundamentalist groups yeah, in the process. Just enormous. Think of that's all the resources that might otherwise have been spent on an overt invasion were instead redirected to, but it's enormous resource. And uh, anyway, it, the same thing happened to Venezuela um, at the level of information, such that people who would <sighs> naturally, given what everybody knows about Latin America's history at the hands of foreign intervention be supportive of mm-hmm. now it's maduro's government find themselves using the same bloody language that their opponents the neocons slash neolibs and their opponents on the new far right in quotes mm-hmm. are all using as well right dictator killing his own people mismanagement of the economy should step down and it's really only variations of that that we're hearing all across the West. Mm-hmm. Even even the there's there's some okay, I'll give it that some of the new new left Congress people mm-hmm. like what's her name? Ocasio Cortez have come in and uh, Bernie Sanders they they gave a kind of tepid support to Maduro because they know damn well that regime changing Latin America they're like this is wrong but at the same time they're like the party line (laughs) (laughs) we've got to get rid of him he is a problem well suppose it goes against everything they stand for right those leftist politicians intervention or regime change and stuff and And, supposedly especially South America which is traditional traditionally socialist uh, democracies that were were overthrown by the US how can Bernie Sanders and the like not just be that's a gift that's a negative reason why he should be against but the positive reason he should be for Venezuela's socialist regime, in quotes, mm-hmm. is because they're supposed to be nominal. Aren't they the same team? Right. They're all socialists, right? Right. But they're not. When, when it comes to calling the vote and everyone pitching in their two cents, all these rabid lefties are, are abandoning Venezuela. Like, <laughs> so just, It speaks to the fickleness of, uh, <laughs> of, of, of people and, and what they think yeah. they... they, they the, but the, the political ideology they think they hold to is it's very it's very superficial. I think the say. confusion can be <sighs> dispelled by framing it like this. Reframe it in your minds. Venezuela is a country, country with a flag and a an anthem and a people. And yeah, there are mixed peoples, whatever. But 
they're all Venezuelans and they see themselves as part of one country. It doesn't matter if they call themselves the communist red brigades of the Martian invasion. They see themselves as Venezuelans. Ergo, it is a nationalist project, nationalist project, supported by the nation. It's substantially, we'll get into the, the issue in a moment of, of just how many villains will support or not. Because that is a bit more complex. But for argument's sake, it's substantially supported by the people of that country. Whether they wear red and, and call themselves socialists or not, is kind of irrelevant. And their opponent... Their opponents, plural, are globalists. Now, th th they direct most of the ire at the United States, but, but that's largely because the United States is the primary vector for globalism. Mm -hmm. But their opponents are global. It's globalism versus nationalism. When you're coming down on Maduro and you find yourself on John Bolton's side, you're being a freaking globalist. There's no way around that. Right. That's the bottom that, line for me. Maybe that's, that's too simplistic. That's the main job that's been done on people. Because I mean, who who are going to who's going to support John Bolton in in any other context? No. Who, well, who's going to support him in the U.S. today? Conservatives, right? And what are conservatives traditionally not for? Globalism. They're for nationalism. It's the exact opposite of globalism. Mm. And that's the, that's the main job and the manipulation that has been perpetrated on on conservatives, conservative-minded people in the US for really going back to the, the, the Bush in 2000, 2000 and George W. Bush and his neocons and their, their, their push for expanding America's influence around the world. That's not what conservatives are for. And the only way, like we said this many times before, the only way they could get not just conservatives but a lot of people in the US behind that agenda of the globalization of, or, or, or America's global, globalization push uh, was by leveraging 9-11 the blunt trauma that was 9-11 we're being attacked United States. we're being attacked and that's why we have to go otherwise we wouldn't do this because we're conservatives right and we're for nationalism and looking after our own interests first here though the prem that premise is stretched um there's no muslim affiliation no so there can be no association with 9-11 thus with being no. attacked there's, no there's not so how on earth i think at this point they think that most americans just don't care and they can carry on as they want I mean, like you said, that I mean, they they come out again. I mean, Marco Rubio, the little shit, has been talking about uh, Venezuela for several years now. Yeah, he's gone in for Venezuela, and it's not the first time he's used the word dictator. But now you see the the the, the song of the media, you know, the chorus getting in behind uh, Marco Rubio and, and a few others that made the, this uh, that you know have been talking about Venezuela in the past few days, and they just check all the boxes, you know. Yeah. Freedom and democracy, uh, he's a brutal dictator, killing his own people, uh, think about the babies, think about the children. I mean, it's, you know, you're just transported back 15 years, or, or you could go back 30-some years to the first Gulf War and babies and incubators. Think about the babies. Don't think about this in any depth at all. Just think about the babies. Have you got a clear image of a baby in your head, for God's sake? And it's lying on the ground. It's a little Venezuelan baby, Venezuelan baby and it's holding an American flag. And it's crying out, it's crying tears of hope and desperation at the same time because there's the promise of freedom and democracy from America coming to save him. And will you, the American people, not help that small child? Will you not? <laughs> have you no heart at all? This is what I want you to think about. Are you not a patriot? Are you not a patriot? Do patriots not love babies? Come on.
<laughs> that's what's going on. You know, it's terrible. And it's just like, well, you know, okay. Uh, what, I, these guys spent the last three freaking years drilling into everyone's head, especially Americans, about how evil it is that Russia meddled in our elections. Yep. And in the same breath, basically, in the same political breath, they say, we're going to meddle in that country. So his meddling is super bad, but we're going to meddle in that country. Hypocrisy much? I don't know. I mean, that, that, that flagrant kind of uh, shameless... The lack of self-awareness is pathological. Like. Or lack of care. I mean, do they not know? But they have, they have narratives to explain it, right? They say, well, no, you see, it's different. When we complain about Russia meddling in our democracy that's different from us meddling in another democracy because first of all we are a democracy not only are we a democracy we're the greatest democracy that the world has ever known you know or the universe has ever known possibly therefore for another country to meddle with us is a moral insult it's 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 just uh, such a moral transgression it's it's beyond belief but we're not meddling in a democracy we are spreading freedom and democracy, or bringing freedom and democracy to a dictatorship. See the difference? That's how I explain it to myself anyway, as a politician, as an American uh, congressman. And it, and it feels good when I say that, when I explain it that way. It actually feels really good. I like it. The thing is, though, it's not just the United States. It's not just Washington crazies. No, it's all of their blackies. Um, there was obviously a coordination between the US and Brazil, because they basically issued those statements that they recognized this other guy with the minutes of each other. And then in very quick succession, um, most South American and Caribbean, I think, countries did the same. Not Mexico, not Cuba, not Bolivia, and one other. That was it, though. Yeah, the rest of them did. Um, in Europe, uh, the EU... The EU again, no shame. Yeah. They're not even democratically elected, but right. they're going to lecture um, others about what is. Well, as, as, as people have probably seen on social media, the the French government, the French president, talking about, I, I'm going to bring. You know, um, the protests in in uh, Venezuela are just uh, terrible. These people need to be helped. They need to be given some support. While <laughs> eleven weeks, consecutive weeks of very large protests in his own country which have killed 10 people and maimed dozens and imprisoned thousands and he's going to talk about helping another country deal with uh, helping the protesters in another country while he stands over the the, the the suppression of protests in his own country. Uh, yeah. Ah, but you see, it's different. Do you want me to give you another another explanation of why that's different? Yeah. You see, in France, politicians are full of shit. Basically, that's the answer. Uh, they don't have a narrative. They're just full of shit. I think what we're seeing is it's like the, it's like the crossing of of two tracks. You see, this this issue of the legitimacy of Maduro didn't just come out of the blue. No. There, there's been a build-up to this since 2014. Mm-hmm. And this, what we saw last week on Wednesday, is actually, actually follows a logic 
of previous steps that have happened in Venezuela and then abroad as well. Um, at the same time, there's this other track of events that's culminating in intense political crises in France, in the United Kingdom, and in the US. I would include that too. Um, Trump mm. may have won, but that, that was by no means the end of it, as mm. we've seen with, with the incredible it divisiveness. It's just the beginning of a profound constitutional crisis in precisely the same meaning of that term as is being pointed out. Well, look at Venezuela. They have a clearly profound constitutional crisis. But then the obvious response that it is, well, yeah, so do you. Mm -hmm. um, but I say they're in two tracks and they're kind of they're just meeting at this juncture because, of course, the, the mindset that informs the political elites in Europe and the United States and apparently also in Latin America who have treacherously betrayed Maduro, in my opinion, um, they're coming from they're coming from the, the kind of the old rules. They were unspoken rules. I'll give an example. Um, probably, probably needs some some recent history in Venezuela. Okay, so for, for the, all of Chavez's time, uh, all the referenda. Uh, in Venezuela and the elections for pres president and then for their parliament were won by Chavez's party party or supporting parties, uh, affiliated parties. And then the first snag was hit after. Well, there was a sign actually that it was well, maybe because Maduro only just won by 50%, 50 percent, 50 point something in 2013, the year after Chavez, mm -hmm. the year Chavez died. Uh, he only just won. So it was coming up to 50-50 there. And, and then parliamentary elections in 2000. Well, then the riots started as right. a result of the economic situation, which we're pretty sure was manipulated. To, and part of the oil price drop yeah. was manipulated as well. Yeah. And then there were the elections to the parliament in 2015. Well, the first time non-pro-Bolivarian revolution people won. Right. And they won, they won clear. The opposition, the Maduro opposition won in a By two clear, to one in seats. Right. They had a majority, a super majority, actually, in in the parliament in Venezuela. So that should have been... Except they didn't, because what started to happen then was a political battle between Maduro's government and supporting parties and the opposition parties. And part of that, what arose from that was, first, first of all, four seats were taken away to reduce what was called a supermajority to a regular majority. And that is, from my reading of it, that had an effect on, it limited the ability of the parliament. Of the opposition to, party. To, op to. The opposition party now in control of the parliament right. to block Maduro's right. legislation. Right. Um, and they hated that. They were incensed by it. They, they already hated the regime, but they saw that as... Subversion of democracy. They began to say that the coup, this is where the first talks of a coup happening within the country, and Maduro accused of being a dictator, began from there. Right. And it got worse. Because Maduro then started to bypass the regular parliament that it was have been created by Chavez's constitutional change approved by popular referendum back in ninety nine. He began to tinkering with things yeah. by creating um, a new constitutional assembly, right. um, which the opposition hated. 
Now, he said it was to calm down, to prevent the country going into civil war. Mm -hmm. No political parties will be taking part in it as such. It will be more like a kind of a tribunal system of, of the old Roman Empire where you would have um, different right. sectors of the economy represented. Right. So now manual workers, now the... Uh, so it was more like direct democracy sector. in a certain sense. Yes, he said the way... He thought of this and he said the way out is in. So the way in for them this whole time has been to implement a socialist revolution with as much direct democracy, participatory democracy as possible. Get people literate. Mm -hmm. They achieved that. Get, Get them, them to really politically, aware. Into, politically aware, aware of the Constitution, aware of their rights, and that was working. And now he's like, okay, how are we going to get out of this crisis? Let's go in further, and we'll set up, we'll bring in even more democracy, more referenda, more involvement of local right. communities. So the situation so you have right now is that for the past four years, you've had effectively two kinds of, two, two parliaments, or almost like two governments. From there, it's gone bonkers, because You've had effectively two parliaments because one doesn't recognize the other, the powers of the others. That created a parallel, um, the opposition people in Venezuela set up a parallel Supreme Court, right. which narrows eyes and apparently adjudicates in exile from Panama. Right. Um, it's bonkers. And, and now that's why the culmination that's last week of a parallel president is the next sequence. So there's a parallel president, uh, judiciary, and uh, legislative branch so, so the leader <laughs> the leader of that original parliament of the official let's say official parliament is this guy guido he's the nominal leader he's been shoehorned in he's been in he's three shoehorned weeks in, but, he, but they voted the ones in the parliament vote and since the opposition has a majority in that parliament uh they yes. voted for him and and then he just i mean there's i don't think there's anywhere that says he can declare himself no president according to <clears throat> venezuela constitution as it is mm. It would be the vice of Maduro who right. would be second in line. Right. There is no, there's no recourse in it for. Right. But what they're doing is they're going with, um, they're going with Maduro's. I'm not sure how how they're they're, they're arguing it legally. Anyway, the principle of the thing is they're going with Maduro's presidency being illegitimate. Right. That that, that was said simply right. last week. That, yeah. That's what they reported. And if he's illegitimate, ergo. This other guy is as right. leader of the opposition. Right. Um, Let's talk a little bit about Russia's involvement. Russia. Some people think that Russia is going to like invade Venezuela, <laughs> set it, up a military it, base in Venezuela. And okay. The, the short-term use... history of, of the build-up to this, Russia saw this coming, you, right. and you can see they did because there were meetings. Maduro was in Russia last year. Right. Um, in December, Russia sent those two bombers to land in Venezuela. Right. Uh, people were like, what's going on there, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, there have been rumors about trying to build a, maybe build a base of some kind, naval or air base, mm -hmm. I'm not sure. Um, but there's also economic ties. Uh, December, December 2017, so just over a year ago, Russia's Rosneft won gas licenses in Venezuela. Uh, military deals as well. Um, in fact, this was just a few days ago, Russian MP warns Venezuela's current chaos can impede defense cooperation with Moscow. So Russia's interest in Venezuela is economic. They're kind of they're fairly long-term allies. Uh, they're ideological, ideologically aligned in the sense of they both support a kind of multipolar world against America's unipolar world. Uh, but Russia is not 
in any position, given that Venezuela is half a world away, to do what it did in Syria. Um, but you notice that what the Russians are doing right now is they're trying to do a similar thing they did in Syria, have been doing in Syria to, to great effect, which is to offer themselves as the mediator. You know, to the extent that the Americans don't want to be seen to ignite a, a civil war and massive bloodshed in Venezuela, Russia has a kind of a, can insert a wedge there and say, listen, you know, we have a long-term relationship with the Venezuelan government. We, we've talked to Maduro. Maduro listens to us. We can negotiate something. Let's let, you know, and that's a strong position, you know, <clears throat> that Russia exploits there, or a, a strong, it's an opportunity that Russia is, is exploiting and, and it offers, it, you know, potentially offers them a, a strong position to be the negotiator between these two opposing factions because then they get to influence the outcome as well. And that's all they can do really at this point. Uh, but it could be significant. Um, significant. What about, how real is this in terms of an actual coup? What can, what can actually happen here? There's, a, there's no hint yet from the US that they would physically I don't know, send in the... Send in the Marines or something. And they would have done that 100 years ago, but that seems to be off the table. And it's off the table because Venezuela can defend itself. So, yeah, to some extent, yeah. I think it's also off the table because... It wouldn't be a cakewalk, put it that way. Because of an interesting situational problem between Colombia and Venezuela because of previous U.S. actions in Colombia in the 20th century... There was a 50-year-long civil war, mm -hmm. and those, the leftover from that, the left, left, the left-sided leftover, the FARC, it's not long since they put down their weapons, which they still have available, and there's some 20,000, apparently, in the borderlands between right. so, Colombia yeah. and Venezuela. And they've said that if they get a whiff of anyone doing any invasion of Venezuela, they'll be... right. On Maduro's yeah. side. And, and just for people who don't know, Colombia is obviously a border, a long border with uh, Venezuela. It's right to the left of Venezuela at the top of, of South America there. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, things to think about if you were planning some kind of a, uh, any kind of direct military action in Venezuela. And the problem is it's a very big country, you know. Um, it's, you know, it, it's, it wouldn't be the kind of cakewalk... Uh, it is in in Iraq, and the gains would be could be could be negligible, you know. But there's also the possibility that you know Trump obviously kind of quiet about this. It seems that well, let's actually just play the little Twitter um, video from uh, it's the House House uh, Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, these are members of the Congress who are on the Foreign Relations Committee, and um, they released a little short video recently. Uh, explaining the situation and what they're all going to do. Maduro's administration held fraudulent elections and he has lost his mandate. We cannot allow Nicolas Maduro to destroy his country, to continue to steamroll democracy and to act with impunity. I am introducing legislation to require the American government to have a strategy to provide humanitarian assistance directly to the Venezuelan people, help NGOs deliver food, medicine, and other basic aid to the country, 
and provide more funds for humanitarian aid. I will be introducing legislation that restricts the export of arms and other items such as tear gas and riot gear to Venezuela. The United States must stop selling weapons to Maduro, weapons that he turns around and uses on the Venezuelan people. It's vital that we actively combat the bonds that the corrupt regime is forming, none of which is more troubling than its tie to Russia and Vladimir Putin. That is why I'm drafting legislation to require the State Department and our intelligence agencies to provide a threat assessment of Russia's influence in Venezuela and a strategy for actively combating the Kremlin's influence. I want to waste no time in focusing the attention of our new Congress on the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela created by Nicolas Maduro and his cronies. I thank Congresswoman Wasserman Schultz, Shalala, and Mercosel Powell for their quick leadership in addressing the crisis in Venezuela through innovative new legislation, and I look forward to working with them to hold Mr. Maduro accountable in the weeks and months ahead. Me, me, me. Oh, he sounds like such a drone. Who is he? <laughs> uh, he's just, he's Republican, I think. Um, but that was Washington Schultz there. She was the chairman of the Democratic National Committee back under Hillary Clinton. She was basically the, the one top woman in Hillary Clinton's campaign. Uh, and she... Her, she is united with obviously other members of Congress, Republicans, Democrats, Republicans, in deciding that um, that Venezuela needs a good dose of re- regime change. Uh, the the interesting thing about that video, apart from the fact that you know Trump is now aligned with Washington Schultz, effectively, which is bizarre, uh, because you know that's actually a Clintonista basically. And he's friends with her now, I suppose. Maybe he was never not friends with her. Who knows? Um, but the the assumption in all of the comments made there by those people uh, that America has the absolute right, <clears throat> not just the right, but actually is, has a responsibility to stop other countries governing themselves. The wrong way, yeah. As far as they're concerned, yeah. That that that's there's something very very wrong there, and it's very wrong because it's so unconscious. It's taken absolutely as as a given. It's not even. It don't even need to mention it, you know, because it's automatically assumed that America has that right uh, and can take that right to itself at any given moment, anywhere in the world, to say that country isn't doing what it should be doing, by our standards, and therefore we are going to screw it to the wall. Uh, for me, that's the bottom line reality about all, all of this and why you just kind of go, well, there's nothing. What can you do, you know? When you have that level of arrogance that is so implicit in a, in a country, in the leadership of a, of a country that, you know, is the most powerful country in the world, what the, are you going to do? The United States gives itself the right to <clears throat> fix the problem. You notice that some of the specific things, there was no suggestion that they would actually send in the Marines mm-hmm. there, but they were about sanctions. They were about preventing weapons falling into the hands of Maduro's government, including tear gas. Hey, Debbie, uh, if you're keeping an eye on France, you, she, <laughs> does, could, could you, you stop hear, could the, you use uh, some humanitarian assistance? Yeah, uh, could you stop French people having their hands blown off and their eyes blown out uh, by the French police firing tear gas at them? 
Perhaps. Um, Any chance? No, no. But it, it again, I was getting to this earlier, it doesn't come out of a vacuum. The American position on the face of it is blatantly hypocr hypocritical and extreme and crazy and all that. It's all true. But it doesn't, it, it comes from somewhere. It comes from this globalist thing. You see, since 2015, um, Venezuela's neighbors have had issue at, at the legal technical level with what is going on there. And they have sound reason to do so because Maduro did effectively bypass the existing parliament. Mm -hmm. it's, it has been limited in its powers. Mm -hmm. It has been bypassed by the creation of this new... It, it, in fact, it was this the creation of this new constituent assembly, mm -hmm. which was drawn up with a view to creating a new constitution for mm -hmm. Venezuela. Um, that's set off the alarm bells in Washington, Brussels, London, Paris, and other Western capitals. Mm -hmm. And that's what... Uh, gave justification for launching the sanctions against Maduro's government. Mm -hmm. um, th these people are not wrong in what they're saying because they are fiddling with democracy. Mm -hmm. As they have themselves constituted it in Venezuela in a, a really intense power struggle. Mm -hmm. That is absolutely happening. Um, so the opposition has legitimate grievances that they're being they're being manipulated through the system to not have a the the matching power that they would otherwise have according to the Venezuelan constitution, even though that constitution is totally geared towards the Bolivarian Revolution. So they are being cut out, limited, hampered, etc. And so the criticism is not just the United States government. Uh, didn't just appear out of nowhere last week. Um, in two years ago, Mercosur, which was a trading block in mm. for Latin American countries, partly set up by Chavez himself, I think, suspended Venezuela over its breaches of its own pr constitutional procedures since the 2014 crisis began. Um, it's been condemned a number of times by the OAS, the Organization of American States. It's been condemned many times by the UN, um, by the European Union. And an interesting comment from the European Union's unelected, but whatever, uh, foreign minister, Mogherini, she said that if Venezuela is acting contrary to democratic norms, and technically she is right. But here's where the rubber hits the road, and these two tracks kind of cross each other. All these people are presiding over governments, super states, um, international organizations whose legitimacy in this time is coming under serious question mm -hmm. and whose constitutional authority in this time is come to, coming under serious question. Witness the constitutional crisis in the United Kingdom, for example. The 80% support for a frankly, a revolution, an insurrection on the streets of France at the moment, whereby technically Macron is the legally 
elected, democratically elected authority. But nobody wants And the it. people have no right to simply say two years into it, Macron démission, go. He, of course, is going to look at that and say, well, no, we all agreed by the social contract. I was voted in. Maybe only a quarter of the population voted me in, but technically, according to a blah, 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 blah. And yes, they, they probably fiddled those rules. But whatever. According to the democratic norms, in quotes, mm-hmm. he's... And so that's where they're coming from. They're, they're coming from a place where they sincerely believe in their legitimacy. And they have, a, they have a history of roughly 100 years, maybe let's say since Pax Americana, since World War II, to back them up. And they're looking at all these crises. Why was Trump elected? Or what the hell's with Brexit? People really don't want Brexit, do they? Mm. And in France, what's wrong with these people? They're looking at it going, this is nuts. They're trying to overthrow the legal order here. Great. And it's creating crazy paranoia in their heads, like someone must be doing this. Mm-hmm. I bet it's Russia. Yeah, because they can't they can't accept the idea that that people would no longer, for whatever reason, would no longer be happy with the system as it has been uh, for so long, right? Uh, Western dem- democratic political system. Uh, people are, but of course, it's not that people have a problem with that system. The problem is that people have ordinary people in, in Western Western countries have a problem with their the elite the political elite yeah. and the evidence that they're a bunch of shysters, yeah. that they're corrupt and they're increasing and they're, they're increasing themselves in their corruption uh, and they're becoming more blatant and more unashamed about it and they think they can just get away with it. Uh, and people are becoming politically aware. Like, I think it was Henry Kissinger several years ago uh, said that, or no, it was Brzezinski actually, uh, who's now dead, isn't he? Yes. Thank God. Anyway, um, he is the one who said, who warned that um, the political awakening of ordinary people uh, you know, around the world, but certainly in Western countries, is a major threat. I didn't say, well, who it was a threat to, but it's a major, it's a major threat. Of course, it's a major threat to the existing order. you know. And there is some reason to say, well, okay, it, may, it is a kind of a threat in the sense of if, it's, if that kind of political awareness, a political awakening among the population is going to sweep away an old order, What's going to replace it? What what are they going to replace it with? <clears throat> but and people have no idea what they're going to replace it with, except at the moment, the 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 bad word du jour that everybody, all the media apparently hates, uh, and is trying to remind everybody that is a really bad word is the word populism, um, and populism is what they mean and what it really what it what it actually means is the people exerting influence direct influence over the government, saying directly saying no to this policy, no to that policy, no to this policy. We want this, this, and this. Um, I.e. not leaving it up to the elected representatives to just carry on and do whatever they think is right, which in the past supposedly was the way people were happy to, to go about it. Just we elect those people because I think they're probably going to do the right job and then assume that they'll do the right job. Well, it's becoming increasingly clear to people that they're not doing the right job. They're not doing what they said they would do. It's all bullshit. So the only solution is, well, we'll take power directly into our hands or we'll demand that we have power directly in our hands. And that's what the Yellow Vest protests in France yeah. are about, is that people basically saying they're effectively trying, well, they probably won't achieve it. They're trying to, like you said, get rid of Macron. They're shouting for him to resign. Yeah. Resign now. And not only resign, but we want a new system afterwards where there's regular referenda on important policies. Where you, ha- you, the, you, the politicians, have to submit to us 
and throughout your term. Now, we don't get to just vote for you to go in power, but when you get into power, then when you decide on, on or your, you and your government decide that you're going to pass this particular law, you don't just pass it. You don't just discuss it among yourselves and vote on it. You have to give it to us to vote right. on it. One of the things, the, the RIC, the Popular Referendum Initiative, is probably the cornerstone that unites the LFS, but one of the smaller things that's been heard maybe less often, but articulated a lot nonetheless, is a demand for a people's assembly, mm-hmm. which is exactly what, what Maduro is setting created, up. Yeah. And it was exactly when Maduro set that up that the propaganda in the West went really, really hardcore against him. Earlier it had been simply more along the lines of a weak, a weak wishy-washy argument. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an economic crisis there. You see what socialism does, never go socialist. Mm-hmm. But now they had um, a bit more meat to hang it on because they were saying, ah, and they were kind of right. He's, he's fiddling with the popular result of, the, of, an, of an election, in this case to parliament, by creating something that'll bypass it, which he'll have control over. Mm-hmm. It's not that simple, but it's kind of right. Mm-hmm. And interesting, he was going to have control over it to create an actual popular assembly that would have increased participatory democracy in the country. Um, and yes, that's one of the demands of the Yellow Vest. It's, al- it's almost like an analogy would be that it's kind of like children coming of age, if you know what I mean, getting yeah. in their teenage years, you know, where they've lived throughout their childhood, they lived under the, the dictates of, of, of the parents. The parents decided what was right and wrong and they had to, they had to obey. Uh, but then when the kids get to be 16, 17 years old or 15, 16, 17, whenever they start, to say, they start to rebel, basically, and say, you know, I know more than you now. You're not the boss of me. I've got my own mind. I can, uh, you know, I know what I want. I don't really have to listen to you anymore. It's almost like it's the teenage angst, you know, among the population, you know. Um, but I'm not it's saying, I'm not, say I'm not that, saying I mean, it's wrong. Um, I think it's quite a good thing, actually. I, I went to bed with uh, an odd thought last night. I'm in the middle of reading um, Fear, the book by Bob Woodward about Trump's administration two years in. <clears throat> I was just, it's a remarkable read, actually. It's blatantly anti-Trump. Like it's, but it's so anti-Trump that it actually dishes a lot of truth between the lines. It's, it's worth reading, actually, just for that alone. But the thought I went to sleep with was, this is insane. I know more about how the world is than all of these experts he's naming, these top like seasoned professionals. Because it I mean, the, the book is getting into what they really think. It, 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 it has un, unsourced quotes, but what I suspect are real. I don't think Bob Woodward made them up. He's quoting people, sharing their innermost, when it comes to it, this is what I really think about the situation. Unless, I have to imagine, unless they're actually hiding from themselves and thus from casual conversations among each other, what they really, really know about the world, which, but I doubt that. I think that Bob Woodward has a collection of information there that gives you an insight into the world as they actually see it. And oh. it's profoundly juvenile. I'm like, I know more about them. This is insane. I, I shouldn't. I, I should be the student and they should be the teacher. Mm-hmm. But it's not. It's the other way around. Mm-hmm. And that's nuts. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the things, Ukraine was one of the countries. <laughs> last week they recognized right. Maduro as not the legitimate like Ukraine yeah. has anything to say like like they've got a voice like. bloody hell again like you're relevant Ukraine it's interesting the countries with the most <laughs> profound constitutional issues are the ones saying that this other country has a constitutional issue um, but he made a statement Poroshenko which was very telling he said the people of Venezuela are saying no to populism mm-hmm. 
Now, inadvertently, he's touched on the crux of the matter. The globalists obviously want people to say no to populism mm -hmm. because no to populism would mean no to your own self-empowerment. Right. Or at the very least, no to aligning yourself with elite, a leader or elites, plural, who more or less enacts more or less the popular will of the right. people. And work. listens to them more and enacts the, yeah, of the majority. And that's why in Europe, you know, every populism today, as it's when it's being used in the media and by politicians, uh, is associated directly with Nazism, racism, fascism, all the isms, probably sexism thrown in there, all, all that stuff, you know. Um, because like in countries like Hungary, for example, one, one good example in Europe, but also Italy to some extent, um, it seems that there's a there's a kind of moralistic and mo it's strange because you, you talk about a moralistic backlash against the way the kind of globalization and immigration and that kind of stuff in Europe and you call that uh, you, ca you can call it moralistic and the on the one hand they'll call it moralistic but at, in the same time they'll say that it's fascist so they're kind of saying that <laughs> that morality these days is fascist you know uh, and 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 they're, they're they're demonized as being Nazis by the kind of the, the EU central powers and the people who are, are anti-populist. Most of Europe is most of the European governments are anti-populist. I.e., they want to retain power and control, absolute power and control for themselves. You know, um, but it's uh, it's bizarre because that's you know if you go back, that's in theory what democracy is all about: listening to the will of the people and mm -hmm. doing at least doing. You don't have to listen to the will of the people all the time as long as you're doing right by the people yeah but at least or at least if you're listening to what the majority of the people want but increasingly in europe and i think these numbers are fudged and they're not presented in, in the way in the real way but i think a majority of people in europe and i think a majority of people in america lean towards conservatism mm -hmm. in towards its, country just in its, pure, country, just in its purest form like as in almost everybody who's born and grew up in a country in europe and has family members going back several generations in that country, they like that country. They're nationalistic, first and foremost. So if you had to choose, if you, had to, if you asked anybody, a majority of people in Europe would say that the country that they grew up in, that that keeping the kind of the identity and the cultural identity and traditions of that country that they grew up in and that they passed on from their parents and stuff, that's more important to them than, for example, immigration, letting than letting other people in. They may not be opposed to other people coming in, to some extent, you know, obviously there would be limits to it or whatever. They might be opposed to immigration. But if they have to choose between immigration and keeping my culture, they'll say keeping my culture. And that's presented today as something inherently evil, which blows my mind how anybody can think that someone expressing simple kind of nationalistic, i.e. love for their country in the sense of, not in a broad sense, but say I'm French, I like, I prefer French wine, I like the French countryside, um, I like French songs, I like French values. That's, that makes you a Nazi. Yeah. That's kind of more or less what they're saying and what, yeah. what's tr what they're trying to eradicate, you know. And of course, like we talked about this in previous shows, that the imperative, the government's imperative of bringing in cheap labor via immigration requires that national identity be watered down and ideally abolished for a more pluralistic, multicultural identity. But then you're, you no longer have Frenchness, you no longer have Spanishness, you no longer have Irishness, you no longer have Englishness. 
even if you don't like them, or Germanness. You don't have that anymore, you know? It has to be sacrificed for essentially what's an economic imperative of, of the elite, and they would say for the benefit of the people that we need to grow our economy in perpetuity, and the only way we can do that in the current kind of demographic crisis that we're having in Europe is to bring in large numbers of immigrants. And they are a lot of them are coming up from different... Well, first of all, they're different uh, skin colour, and they're also um, from different background, different cultural background, and different religious background. And to avoid the clashes and the non-assimilation of those people by a, by a pushback from people within the European countries, you have to water down the sense of identity within European countries. Uh, and that's something, like we said in previous shows, that people in those European countries hold to quite dearly. You know, it's, it's the traditions of my grandparents and my great-grandparents and what they passed down to me. It's little things in my house. It's little, it's, it's you know, it's the lay of the land almost. Mm-hmm. Or it's, 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 it's what I see when I walk down the street. It's the people I talk to, you know, stuff that's, that provides a sense of stability and continuity for me, you know. In a crazy world, I want stability and continuity. Yeah. And you're telling me that I have, to th- I have to give that up for, in the interest of, well, you, you try and tug at my heartstrings and say it's for the poor immigrants, but what you're really doing it for, what the politicians really are doing it for, is for economic interests and ultimately econo- their own economic interests, even if they say it's for the benefit of the people, ultimately it's, it, it's for their own economic interests and their own position to power. And I think that's the fundamental truth of it. And I see so many people being duped by the humanitarian, the call to humanitarianism, the call to uh, diversity and... and uh, you know, tolerance and all that kind of stuff, that it, that is an agenda, basically, to try and accept uh, the diversification of, of, of European countries. And, like, I can't say that what I just said without many people that I know turning around and saying that I'm a fascist or a Nazi or a racist or a sexist or whatever. You know, they can't actually receive that message. They can't even... And, this, and it's a bizarre thing, because I'm Irish, and it's a bizarre thing coming from Ireland, because Ireland has a long, long history, especially from my uh, community, but even in from Northern Ireland, the, the, the nationalist community, but also there's a strong nationalism in Ireland because it was, you know, for many years opposing British uh, British occupation. Um, and it's bizarre to me to see people that I know who 20 years ago were uber-nationalists can have just flipped. And because of the diversity thing, they've had to throw off their, their sense of nationalism, which is basically just a sense of of, of attachment to your to your home country and your home values and your home and your home culture, you know, and it's in Irish and a lot of Irish people. It's made even more strong because it had to be uh, held on to more tightly in the face of foreign occupation. Right. Uh, but for me, what blows my mind is that uh, people who had that upbringing, that nationalistic upbringing, it's been undone in a matter of years by this propaganda offensive of diversity that actually pitches today Irish nationalists in the camp of kind of racist Nazis, you know, conservative right-wing nutjobs. Yeah, it blows it, my mind. It's a weird one. Um, Ireland is a madhouse at the moment. As John Waters said, it's, it's enjoying peak liberal ascendancy. So yeah. it hasn't, ha- it's, it's had a Has few it. signs <clears throat> of the beginning of the backlash. Um, but nothing like in France. In, in Ireland, they, they started having a few little like yellow vest gatherings hmm. in solidarity with France and also to say, yeah, that's hmm. exactly what's going on in our country too. But very little support from what I can see and online anyway, complete castigation of them as, 
as idiot throwbacks, um, mm. as ignorant and all this stuff. So people are, they're fully ensconced in it, I think, at the moment. But then Ireland has been a latecomer. It was a latecomer mm. to everything. a lot of every, everything before. So it's, it's waiting for it to cycle around. Right. It is on the periphery of Europe. So right. um, I, think it, I think it's fickle, though. I think it's only so shallow. Ireland is an old country. Um, well, I th- well, it's been long I thought since you were people that. I suffered. Think, but well, I think it's worse than that in the sense that I, I, I would also agree with the word fickle, but I don't think, I think the problem is that people are fickle. And the people that I thought really felt the kind of sense of Irish national identity and all that kind of stuff strongly, weren't. they were just doing it for the shits and giggles, basically. So they could easily throw it off when a new, uh, more um, virtue signally ideology came along. I would along, still hope that more most kudos. people caught up in the liberal madness, for them, it's, so it's only skin deep. It's a new co- it's a new coat they've tried on. They bought it at Marks and Spencer's because mm. it was going cheap. Mm. Made in China. Isn't this a great life? Mm. Um, but it, it'll it'll turn around. I mean, it's turned around in France, for God's sake. Well, I don't know if France ever had it, though, was the thing. That's France is a different situation. Oh, France has always been long-term rem- a liberal since the French Revolution. Rem- you know what I mean? So there's a different history remember, there. Remember Pierre's um, rundown of the way... 1968, you mean? More recently, and the Yellow Vests have been citing it a lot. If Macron himself made allusion to it, I know it's been four decades of blah, 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 four decades. Something happened in the 80s where um, a mind job was done on people about anti-racism. Mm. If anything, it was right, yeah. one of the... It was Against a, it the was a, it was an argument made that France was at the forefront of the diversity, right. multi- so maybe that's why now project. They're, they're coming now around. Now they're coming around first. Mm. And they've had enough of it, basically. I swear to God, the, 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 the amount of videos on, the, on out there of people waving the Antifa or not the Black Bloc, those, those guys are still being dicks, um, but hard left, Che Guevara, we're commies. For us, the revolution is about bringing in the communists, blah, blah, blah. They're out on the streets with the nationalists and they're agreeing to disagree. They're defending each other from like other actual agent provocateur mm-hmm. like Black Bloc mm-hmm. and the crazy anarchist um, and the police because they, they, they see they're more in common that they're both subject to the same BS uh, as above. The mayor of Toulouse claims he went out in, incognito, in disguise, just to, to mix with some of the protesters in December. Um, and he said he was astonished to see the fraternity going on between "quote unquote" extreme left protesters and "quote unquote" extreme white ones, mm-hmm. that that can't happen unless there's been a breakthrough of the multicultural BS that's been pushed on people for so long. So France, France got it, France got it hardcore in the eighties. In the eighties, Ireland was like, I was still people, people were still going to mass. It hadn't right. happened yet. Right. That only. The um, the boom times only took off in the 1990s. Right. Still, they were going to mass. And then at the end of that, it's like, you know, the sexual revolution Ch- happened. Child, Ireland's 1960s child, came like the 2000s. Abuse. That that emerged and that put the death knell on religion. Yeah. It wasn't a bad thing. I mean, it wasn't a bad thing in the sense. I was talking about moment. Pe- people have to go through it. Yeah, I mean... It's all just, a lesson, right? People have sm- to go through it. Just a this. small point I want to throw in about religion. I know, that, you know, the Catholic Church was a corrupt and pretty... You know, it's it's not a good. It wasn't never was really a good institution in the modern era. But what I can never understand is why people would throw the whole thing out, the baby and the bathwater type thing, because you know the Catholic Church, the structure of the Catholic Church and the way it behaved itself, uh, very very 
very poorly over the over the decades, you know, with allowing child sex abuse and all that kind of stuff to happen. Um, that that structure has nothing to do with the religious teachings of Catholicism or Christianity. And I don't mean even the hardcore ones. I mean just the general vague belief. So the idea that a lot, a lot of people seem to just throw the whole thing out as soon as the, the structure because I mean the point is that the, the structure of the Catholic Church today and in the past 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years uh, and the people that, that created it and that, and, and that staffed it um, they didn't write the Bible like. you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. but the religion is founded on the Bible let's say or on the New Testament so why you would throw the whole New Testament out as well you know, why you wouldn't say, okay, they're a bunch of corrupt people, but maybe there's something useful in the New Testament. But people who just like, I'm never reading the Bible again. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have never, I've never actually read the Bible just to be, to be, to be clear about this, that I'm not, uh, I'm not a, a fundy Catholic or anything like that. I'm not promoting that, but it just blows my mind the way people are so extreme about things, you know, and can't think in nuanced terms. And why, just because there was that child sex abuse, you would have the destruction of, you know, the decimation, basically, of, of attendance or any kind of sense of spirituality amongst the population of a country ah. because of that. You but know, why don't they hold on to some spirituality? Everybody needs a little bit of spirituality. And if you find it in the Catholic Church or if you find it in Buddhism or if you find it in... You know what I mean? Because that spirituality for a large number of people was, to use the word you used earlier, fickle. The only reason it lasted so long was because there were structures around and outside them, things they could touch, schools they could go to, crosses they could see on walls, masses they could go to every Sunday, right. and the priests they could shake hands with on the way to the shops. It's only because it was physically in the world so the that they were bound to it. Once it was physically removed and placed with gay, gay parades and ecstasy pills and lots of pocket money, it was like, this is the new religion. I'm going to go nuts with this, mm. you know? Mm. Why not? Yeah, well, there's a new religion. Not for that, everyone, but for large numbers. Well, the new religion today is the ideology of basically of inclusivity and diversity and um, nobody being offended, nobody being allowed to be offended. Everybody, you know, progressive values, very progressive values, which unfortunately include the idea of nobody's allowed to be offended. You shouldn't offend anybody. There should be nothing. Uh, nobody should be discriminated against in any way whatsoever. You should root that out. Uh, absolutely from society. And that's a new religion. It's a humanitarian. It's a religion of the heart, let's say. It's how, it's my feelings. It's how I feel. Uh, it's, a, it's a personal religion. Relationship with Jesus, yeah. Well, it's a personal religion <laughs> with yourself, basically, and your own, and uh, but it's and it's promoted, you know, the gods of the new religion are the media, and to some extent the governments, you know, uh, who, who hand down this these um, these sermons on inclusivity. And, uh, and, and it's appealing because all of those are positive ideas, but they're, the point is that they're not practicable. They're not, you know, applicable. Really, you can't really apply them in society. You can't impose it on people. And the danger I see is the is people attempting to oppose that on other people. And they're very. I mean, these are left wing Nazis, basically, in the sense of well, it's true because I mean, the last best example we had of it, or the most commonly known example of it, is and and it's typified not by an ideology, not by a specific ideology, but by something that large numbers of people internalize as being absolutely and unassailably unassailably right and morally right. I have what my beliefs and what I'm proposing and what we as a group are proposing is unassailably the moral objective. Uh, it's objectively moral and it's the moral high ground. There's no question about it. We've discussed it. This is clearly it. And it it's immediately makes sense, right? No discrimination, uh, inclusivity, tolerance, all these positive words. But those same positive words that are used to inform this absolute certainty that 
this is the right thing to do and what the way I see things is the right thing, is the same strength of ideology that led Nazis to throw people into concentration camps. Yeah. Just with a different worldview, because the, the, the same the, the German flavor, right? The Nazis and the Germans were absolutely sure that they had the moral objective high ground, right? And there's no point. You don't even have to argue. There's no point almost in arguing whether or not what aspects of the German people's perspective was actually right, or what aspect of people's perspective today is right. Uh, the problem is that absolute certainty, because it's that absolute certainty and conviction uh, that you are in the right that leads you to then throw anybody who strays from it in any way, who voices an opinion that is separate from it into the concentration camp. You know, so it's the extremist nature of it that leads you to, to, to commit atrocities. And it doesn't matter what the actual details of the ideology are. It's the conviction. And it's the conviction that you're right. And that's what scares me today uh, to the extent that I think I can do anything about it. Obviously, I don't think I can. So I wonder why I even say anything I say in that regard. Like, and obviously my point when I say anything in public is warning people against following these extremist ideologies of whatever stripe down a road that would cause civil dis disaster, basically, civil conflict and, and civil disaster, because no one wins in that situation. Yeah. But apparently there's a lot of people who, who don't care Maybe that's where the fickleness comes in. They just don't care, and they're they're too enamoured with with this sense that I am right. I have right on my side, and they'll run with it. And they don't want. They don't care about thinking. They they probably don't think that it'll ever go that far. But the problem is they're led along by the nose, and before they know it, they're in the situation. Go and ask some. Go back in time and ask some Germans in nineteen nineteen in mid nineteen thirties if they thought that their support for the Nazi party would lead to what happened. They would, they'd say, don't be, ah, you're being extremist. Don't be stupid. That'll never happen. We're just saying this. It's just JFK went with a delegation of congressmen to visit Nazi Germany in the 1930s and came home and told everyone how amazing it was. Mm -hmm. So everyone gets drawn up falling into confidence until obviously things you know, change and then it maybe it comes obvious and some people start to realize but only when it's too, too late. late. So that's what I'm concerned about. That's the only thing I have to say. Uh, the only my 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 main thrust or my main reason for saying anything is is in that in the interest of people not getting carried away yeah. and leading themselves down the path to a really bad situation. Uh, that'll be bad, like I said, for them as well and for their society. Because I mean, if your society's in in, in chaos, well, you think you're going to be having a good time, even if you know. Even if you think you still have the moral high ground, it doesn't matter if you have the moral high ground anymore if your society's in, 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 in ruins, you know. Uh, no one's happy, you know. And people, like I said, don't know themselves very well and don't understand how they can be manipulated in that way and that it's very, it, it hooks into you. It's a hook and it can make you absolutely believe that you're absolutely right about this. But you always need to doubt yourself. Next thing you're a question guard. Right, yeah. As, as Jordan Peterson says, yeah. I mean, that's one of his main theses is that uh, that everybody should... Should, no one should ever look at, for example, again, the na events of Nazi Germany or any other terrible situation like that and think that you would never be the concentration camp guard. You would, absolutely. And if you keep that in mind, at least that uh, serves as a kind of impediment or possible or potential impediment to you actually ending up in that situation. But no one wants to think that about themselves.
we're a long way from Venezuela here, but we um, are. But it's it's part of it because it's populism, it, it, you know, and, and it's it's um, you know, I mean, we're not saying that populism is right because populism is today right wing, except in Venezuela where it's left wing. So that blows the whole idea. And China. But that blows the whole idea that populism is, is, is a right-wing Nazi kind of thing out of the water. Populism is not either or. Populism is just yeah. people in the country unhappy with the way the country is going, usually under the stewardship of corrupt politicians, and demanding that they have a say to, to correct course, you know, and that they have direct access to... I mean, it shouldn't be that way because there's not. I don't think there's anything wrong with the traditional kind of hierarchy of... Of, of people, you know, ordinary people getting on with their daily lives and, and more intelligent, more smart, more capable, a political class running the country and making the decisions, as long as they're doing it with the best intentions of the country and the people at heart. There's nothing wrong with that structured power, that hierarchical structure that has existed for a long time. And it wasn't so bad for most of that time. Um, but the problem is that it breaks down and you get populism when those elites, those political, that political class just becomes, you know, entrenched in corruption and, and, and uh, mismanagement, you know. Uh, that's when people, and so you can't blame the people. And for the media, which most of the media does in the Western, in the Western world, uh, is, is condemn those people, condemn populism. They're simply responding to what is objectively corruption in, in, among the political class. Uh, who, who can argue with that? Who can argue that that's a bad thing and it needs to be changed, it needs to be addressed? That's what populists are doing. But again, populists on the right and stuff have their own agenda, and it's a scary enough agenda as well, where you know they would could be easily led by the nose again, and in the same way as the left is, uh, to, to enacting some kind of right-wing, xenophobic, racist, actual racist, actual whatever uh, policies, you know? So it's a very difficult pathway to navigate and you have yeah. to be very careful and you should always doubt yourself you know and question yourself and don't lend your energy to you know one extreme or the other because yeah. like I said it's no good for anybody and while the media wants you to focus on how important it is to overthrow a populist in Venezuela <clears throat> populists on the streets in France are going I think yes, yesterday was the 11th Act 11 11 weeks non-stop. I think yesterday was a significant increase in numbers on the streets. Yeah. Well, just to go back to Venezuela, to tie it back to Venezuela, yeah. there's populism in Venezuela and it's, it's left-wing socialist populism. Uh, and, but it's not a function of rising up against, you know, people rising up against corruption amongst the elite in terms of in, the, in Maduro and, and, the, and the socialist party in, in Venezuela. That, that populism in Venezuela has been ongoing for a long time under Chavez, but it was originally a reaction to a corrupt elite, the oligarchy that was there before Chavez yeah. and that was keeping millions of people in horribly poor conditions. So it was a response to that. So the populism in, in the left-wing populism in Venezuela has been was on first, let's say. I mean, there's obviously previous examples of it in, 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 in socialist countries uh, at different times. Oh, yeah. But in this, in this area, in this era, you know, that we're dealing with right now, yeah. uh, populism in Venezuela was a reaction to what I was a reaction to what I said. It usually is, which is corruption amongst the elite. And now, only now, it's 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 appearing in, in Western European countries. And pop and Donald Trump is a populist leader. You know, 
Donald Trump, people that supported Donald Trump are called pop, and Trump is accused of appealing to populists or populism in, in the US. But the people who voted for him were responding to eight years of Bush and eight years of Obama and interminable war and terror and the rise of ISIS and the, the, the complete chaos that the war and terror sowed. That response in Donald Trump was a reasonable, legitimate response. He maybe would have, might, might have wished for a different leader, a different, a different candidate, but it was a legitimate response from, I think, a majority of the American people, despite what the actual election results say. I think those elections were probably tweaked in some way and then a bigger majority of people voted for Donald Trump. And they weren't voting for Donald Trump because they love him because he, he's a beep pussy grabber or whatever, you know? Or that he's got ugly orange, an ugly orange face and funny hair. That's, that's not the reason they voted for him. It was a vote against 16 years of a war on terror. Yeah, it was a Molotov cocktail lobbed at Washington. Right. Except that's not enough, I think. I don't, I'm not sure what to say here. I don't want to be an activist and say what Americans should or shouldn't do. But let's say in general, Westerners, if you were serious about um, righting wrongs, about changing around the... The, the, the direction that the ship of state is taking, it, what's happening in France is what it takes. Yeah, I'm not even saying that's going to succeed. The situation here is insane. I think yesterday, I, numbers are crazy. I mean, officially, it's like 10, 40 or 50,000 people on the streets. They're obviously lying because they're also saying there are 80,000 gendarmes, police. What, it's two to one? No. There's videos from towns as small as 10,000 people with possessions of thousands of people from the rural hinterland walking through them. I collected about 30 yesterday from cities large and small across France. The protests are enormous. Like they've, it, it, I think they've increased in size significantly. When I did a kind of calculation, I've got between two and four million people in the streets in France yesterday. They also yesterday for the first time started a night protest. So they protested all through the night at Place de la Bastille in Paris, which is, of course, synonymous with the French Revolution of 1879. The police union is, they are like, we're swamped. We're out of our depth. Um, we really cannot handle this. Um, they're substantially abandoning the rural towns that are being brought into the large cities to conduct, frankly, open warfare against protesters. One of the leaders of the protest movement is kind of an unofficial spokesman who's been on TV a lot. Um, Jerome Rodriguez, I think his name is. The guy with the big hipster beard. He was shot in the head yesterday. He's lost an eye. He becomes the 18th person to lose an eye during the protest. Officially. I, I don't know if anyone's even taking accounts on, on injuries, but um, it's serious. And one of the things the police union representatives have said yesterday is that they're noticing a booming drug trade in France in the last two months. Why? Because while the police are stretched to the limit going into the cities to handle the protests and the riots, crime is... What's going to happen? The criminals are going to be like, well, there's no one watching us here. Yeah. Crime's going to go up, and that's going to increase. I probably see some knock-on effects of that increase: home burglaries, maybe murders. This is where it gets scary, like because it gets chaotic. Okay, it's more or less delineated 
people versus elites, but then there's elements of chaos comes in and yeah, it's um, it's not good. But you know, we got to keep our heads. And uh, this is why you got to keep your heads and and take the kind of observer, catalog the event, tell people what's really happening as best you can. Don't go swinging in and going like, yeah, socialism's bad, so Maduro should go. I mean, that is the most childish, like... Black and white, oversimplified And they're all doing it. All these complex thinkers with huge followings on YouTube. You know, fair play to you. You worked hard to get that. But you're going to simplify that to socialist, therefore bad. Right. Come on, the fuck! It's 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 it's, it's basically what you're saying in other spheres: communism, uh, globalism, communism. Okay, if you like, versus nationalism. Can you not see that? I... Mm. So yeah. Anyway, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the show this week. If you liked it, like, subscribe, and um, comment. If you've got any comments, don't forget to hit the notification bell. Apparently, that's what you have to do. Um, we'll be back next week with If what? people want to contact us with show ideas, suggestions, how do they get in touch? Leave a comment in their videos. Okay. We'll pay attention. Yeah. Okay. Or you can we'll email us at sot at sot.net, S-O-T-T at S-O-T-T dot net. Okay. All right. Yeah. So we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Thanks for watching, and we hope you have a good day wherever you are. See Bye. you next show. Thanks for listening. Bye.